Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 19, Winner Takes All. Last week, we spoke about Philip's sieges of Perinthus and Byzantium. After resistance proved to be stiffer than Philip anticipated, Philip decided to break off the sieges and return to Macedonia. This was a minor failure and a series of long successes for Philip. Still, it must have rankled a bit. Following the sieges, Philip was engaged in Thrace once again when a Scythian king asked for Macedonian aid, promising to make Philip his heir upon his death. Aetius, the Scythian king, reneged after the enemy king he was facing died, causing Philip to retaliate by invading Aetius's kingdom. After hard fighting, Aetius was killed in battle, and Philip took many enslaved people and livestock and horses as booty. Upon returning to Macedonia, Philip was ambushed when traveling through hostile territory and was once again severely injured in combat, with a wound to his leg that left him with a permanent limp. This ambush caused Philip to lose essentially all the slaves captured as the Macedonian guards were forced to deal with the enemy attack. Thus, Philip was left with a mixed result of successes and losses. While in the south, Trouble was brewing as Athens continued their hostility towards Macedonia, looking for allies to join them in the fight with Macedon. Most states were staying neutral as they had nothing to gain fighting Macedonia, and Philip, for his part, did not meddle too deeply in the affairs of southern Greece. However, by 340, it was apparent that Philip was considering a southern invasion into Greece to deal with the Athenians. Their conduct had all but guaranteed it. Thus, Philip's arrival into southern Greece was not a matter of if, but when. Then, the perfect pretext had arrived. The conflict with the city of Amphissa broke out, as they had been accused of cultivating sacred lands. The Amphictyonic League had gathered once again, and after much debate, they declared a sacred war. A Thessalian member of the League proposed that Philip once again lead the combined forces. This proposal was the perfect cover for Philip to march his army south without looking like an aggressor. This brings us back to the current timeline. So now, we get to an episode I've been eagerly looking to cover since I started the Macedonian series. When Philip marched south to deal with Amphissa, Philip would already be faced with a problem. Upon nearing Thermopylae, a town near the pass that Philip had garrisoned had been seized by the Thebans. Despite friendship with the Macedonians, it had been seen as a politically advantageous move for the Thebans, and so they took it. Friendship with Macedonia was a relationship with both as equals, as Thebes saw it. They did not see themselves as lower than Macedonia, and Philip, again for his part, did not see this as an act of war. Once again, Politics was at play here. Philip's forces could pass through the route at Thermopylae if the Thebans accepted Philip's reasoning for the need to pass through. In 340, there had been a power struggle in Amphissa, and a Theban-backed aristocracy had won out. The new leaders of Amphissa, during the annual Amphictyonic meeting, charged Athens with improperly rededicating trophies at Delphi during the last sacred war. This may have been a way for Thebes to get a jab in at Athens, as they, they had been a large reason why the previous sacred war had dragged on, for which six years had been primarily fought by the Thebans. 
Amphissa asked for a fine of 50 talents to be levied on Athens, a sum Athens could pay with little difficulty. And while the Athenians could pay the fine, the real problem for Athens was acquiescing to the charge, which was far more damaging. Athens decided to fight back, and Aeschines and other orators went to the Amphictyonic meeting and decided to fight fire with fire. Aeschines accused Amphissa of cultivating sacred lands, and so a delegation went to investigate. The council members decided to see for themselves, as the lands they were investigating were not far from the meeting grounds, and so they walked over. Upon their arrival, they saw that it was true, and began to torch buildings on the land until they were chased off by people tending to the area. The council members ran back to their meeting spot, and not long after visual evidence of the charge, sacred war was declared. This upcoming part here cracks me up a little bit. The current council of Amphissa was overthrown, and a new council was put in that did not want to fight a sacred war, so they gave up without a fight. And in 339, at the next Amphictyonic council, the League decided to levy a fine on Amphissa instead. This fine caused another revolution in Amphissa, and the old council members, who had just been deposed not long ago, retook power and told the Amphictyonic council they would not pay the fine. So, the Amphictyonic council met up again and declared sacred war, this time calling Philip in to handle things. This loops us back to the waiting Macedonians trying to resolve the new sacred war. In an ironic twist, back in Athens, Demosthenes claimed that Philip was the main architect behind all of the political maneuverings, and called Aeschines a paid informant. It is true that because of Aeschines, sacred war had been initially called for, but Aeschines had been protecting Athenian power, and can be hardly blamed for Philip being called in. Athens was worried about having a Macedonian army so close to them, and rightly so, as they had been instigating against Macedonia, but now had been caught with their pants down. Thebes did not join in the call for sacred war against Amphissa, and Demosthenes to convince Athens not to clear war either, despite being the reason war had been called for in the first place. Demosthenes was trying to curry favor with the Thebans, as they would be a powerful ally in the fight against Philip. Aeschines was not blind to this, and in retaliation claimed that Demosthenes was being paid by the Amphissans. The back and forth of politics never end. Then, when the Macedonians arrived, Philip was informed that he was not granted access through Thermopylae. Thebes was blocking the passages because they were protecting their ally, and so, Philip was not allowed passage through. Philip did not react strongly at being denied passage and moved his forces north a bit. Once again, Philip did not see the point in forcing his way through, and it is most likely he did not have his entire force with him either. It was already the end of October or early November at this point, and war would not be fought until the next year. Philip took a gamble and traveled through the mountains, using an old passage that had been forgotten about and not garrisoned. Philip managed to get his forces through the mountains and was now in central Greece. Philip then capitalized on the leniency he had shown focus back in 346. Philip arrived in the city of Alatia and allowed the city to be repopulated, and the rest of the Phocian settlements restored as well. Philip had brought focus back, 
and now had a base in central Greece he could winter in. Philip then embarked on two plans. The first plan was to negotiate with Athens to find another peaceful resolution instead of resorting to war. The second was dealing with Amphissa. When it came to the latter events, Philip was successful immediately. He managed to outwit the mercenary forces guarding the route to Amphissa and was able to march on the city, expelling the citizens and giving the city to Delphi. Light work for a man of Philip's capabilities. Now, when it came to making peace with Athens, Philip hit several snags. The city of Alatia was only a few days' march from Athens, and Philip was now effectively on the Athenian doorstep. Athens went crazy when this news arrived. For years, Demosthenes and his allies had described Philip as the enemy, who would stop at nothing to destroy Athens if only given a chance. And now, he was close, and Athens was gripped with panic. The next day, Athens had a gathering in the forum with speakers to address the citizens. Nobody would say anything. Everybody was scared. Demosthenes saw his chance, and what follows is relayed to us as one of Demosthenes' finest moments in his life. He spoke out to the citizens and calmed the people, and proposed a plan that had been probably been brewing in his head for a while now. Demosthenes claimed it was time to put aside old grudges and seek an alliance with Thebes. Demosthenes framed this upcoming war with Philip as a war to preserve liberty, as Philip sought to enslave all of Greece. Ambassadors went out again to other Greek settlements to seek alliances once again. Athens took special care with the ambassadors to Thebes, and made sure to show them that old grudges were in the past, and they would help with funding, weapons, and mercenaries. Athens claimed that rivalries among Greeks were only natural, but they could not be overcome by a barbarian outsider. That's right, folks. Philip has just been designated again as a barbarian. You gotta love when it comes down to the wire, people get a little xenophobic once again. Philip had also sent his own ambassadors to Thebes, asking for Thebes to join him, or at a minimum, to allow him to pass through their territory unhindered. Philip's ambassadors arrived after Demosthenes and relayed Philip's message, claiming that Thebes would receive many spoils and the inevitable victory. Philip also asked that Thebes give the garrison city of Nicaea back, the city Thebes had taken that had blocked Philip's pass through Thermopylae. He asked that it not be given to him, but to the Locrians, who had been the best claim to the city, but had been overlooked when Philip had initially taken the city in 346. But things did not go well for the Macedonians and Thebes. Demosthenes gave the speech of his life in Thebes and received thunderous applause from the Thebans prior to the Macedonian arrival. Thebes would ally with Athens. Like with Athens, pride was at the root of the decision for Thebes to ally with Athens. Thebes would maintain their supremacy and show that they were still a dominant power in Greece. Athens also made the Thebans an offer they couldn't refuse. Athens would fund two-thirds of all, the entire war budget on land and pay for all ventures on the sea. And the cherry on top was that it would be a Theban general who would lead the combined land forces. Athens would also ally themselves with Thebes against any other Boeotian city that opposed Thebes, making them the de facto power in the league, which, admittedly, they already were. 
So here we are in 339. Things had rapidly gone out of Philip's control. And now two of the most powerful city-states in Greece had allied against Philip. Conflict at this point was inevitable. Despite all of Philip's successes over the past 20 years as king, Philip had only fought one large major battle against the Greek army, against the mercenary forces of Anamarcos. Fighting the Theban army would be no joke, as they had some of the best citizen soldiers in all of Greece. Thebes had a very prestigious record in the last 50 years, having defeated Sparta 32 years ago, and more recently, having checked the expansion of Macedonia and Thessaly. Athens had already mobilized their army before knowing how Thebes would respond, and so, they were able to meet with the Theban forces quickly and combine their forces. Philip, for his part, continued to try diplomacy. Philip did not have his entire army with him at Alatia, but was confident no real battles would be fought until the following year. By then, he would be reinforced with the rest of his army. Over the winter, we don't have many details, but there were some minor skirmishes that were fought in the winter months of 339, some of which the combined Athenian-Theban forces won, which Demosthenes was quick to highlight in his speeches during this time. These small clashes were not indicative of anything particularly, but they were good propaganda victories to bolster the confidence of the average citizen. Then, in 338, Philip was in a good position still, and over the year, his army was fully bolstered. Each side was hesitant to fight a pitched battle. The Allied forces wanted Philip to engage them on a field of their choosing, and were unwilling to move towards him. Philip was still looking for a diplomatic solution to the whole affair. It was a reasonable hope on Philip's part to try to end things with diplomacy. Philip had been king for 21 years at this point, and a defeat of this scale could cause him to lose everything he had desperately worked for. Philip sent peace overtures to Thebes and Athens, but Philip wasn't interested in making concessions. And like his peace with Athens back in 346, it was a peace built around keeping territory all sides already held. Some Athenians were interested in making peace, but as usual, Demosthenes was staunchly resistant to the idea, and he managed to keep public opinion on his side. As for the Thebans, many were also interested in peace. Philip sending peace overtures after Thebes and Athens had mobilized armies was not viewed as cowardly, but as a way to acknowledge the might of the combined forces. This was sufficient enough for Thebes and Athens to maintain their honor, and not to be viewed as capitulating to Macedonia. Others in Thebes viewed Philip's caution in 338 as weakness, and felt the peace overtures only confirmed that opinion. War against the Macedonians won out, and so, Philip would have no other choice but to fight. Then, in August of 338, Philip moved his army close to the Allied forces near the city of Chironia. Numbers on each side are still contested, but both sides were close and equal strength. Philip had around 30,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry, with the Allied numbers being equal or slightly larger, with 32,000 to 35,000 infantry. The Allied forces were broken roughly down with 10,000 Athenian hoplites, 12 to 15,000 Thebans, the contingents of mercenaries, and additional hoplites from Achaea, Corinth, Chalcis, 
Epidaurus, Megara, and Trotson. The quality of the Allied forces varied, with the Thebans being the most skilled of all the Allies, and their sacred band was fully mobilized. Demosthenes himself would join the battle, his first time ever experiencing warfare. He would, however, be placed all the way in the back, where there was little chance of him fighting. The Macedonians were broken down in their usual makeup, with the bulk of his army being the Pike Phalanx, supplemented by the Hypaspists, the elite infantry unit that was formed like regular hoplites with Macedonian and Thessalian cavalry. On August 2nd, the battle began. Two forces faced each other on the plains close to Chironia, the city which the battle is named after. The plains provided flat ground for the armies to deploy their hoplites in formation and for maximum efficacy for the cavalry. The Allied forces were under the supreme command of the Theban general Theagenes. The Theban forces were formed on the right Allied battle line, with the sacred band on the extreme right. In the center was the mercenary forces and other Allied contingents from the various city-states, and on the left was the Athenian forces. The Macedonians formed up across them, Philip in command of his right wing with ranged skirmishers and leading his elite hypaspists. In the middle was the Macedonian pike phalanx, and on the Macedonian left were more hypaspists and the cavalry, combined Thessalian and Macedonian mix, led by the 18-year-old Prince Alexander. The battle was set to begin. Philip marched his forces forward to engage the Athenians, and the youthful Alexander was told to wait before setting out, being told to wait for the right moment. As the right wing of the Macedonian force moved to engage with their foe, their ranged units began to rain arrows and rocks at the enemy, trying to disrupt their formations. Forces stayed firm and held on, and braced themselves for the Macedonian charge. Once the Hypaspists were within range, Philip gave the order for them to surge forward and crash into their enemy. The Athenians absorbed the impact, and they began to fight determinedly. The Macedonians were fierce fighters and they dealt massive casualties against the Athenians, but the Athenians were staunchly resisting, keeping their formations. Alexander watched the right wing of the army fight and ordered the center and left wing to move forward slowly. This would pressure the Allied forces center, right, and wing to stay put, as if they attempted to surround Philip, they would leave themselves exposed and vulnerable to the rest of the Macedonian forces. After hours of exhaustive fighting, the Athenian forces were tired, unlike the Macedonians who had extensive war experience. Many of these Athenian soldiers were now experiencing the first battle. Surprisingly, Philip ordered his wing to disengage and slowly retreat. Seeing the Macedonian forces retreating, the Athenians smelt blood in the water and surged forward to keep pressuring the Macedonians. Philip's retreat had brought his forces within sight of the advancing Macedonian center, who began to shadow Philip and stay in line with him. The Allied center forces were confused, and half the center surged forward to meet with the Macedonian center, leaving the other half of the center and all of the Theban right behind. This was Alexander's moment, and he took it. Seeing the exposed flank of the center of the army, he charged forward with the cavalry, and cut across the battlefield diagonally, 
signaling the hypaspis on his side to advance and engage the Theban line. With Alexander in motion, Philip calls his forces to stop the retreat and to push forward again. The Athenian forces now were being overwhelmed by the Macedonians, and the portion of the Allied center that had rushed forward was now being savaged by the Pike Phalanx, as the regular Allied infantry could not get in range to the Macedonians due to the Macedonian Sarissa. Meanwhile, Alexander and the cavalry rode their steeds behind the Allied center, where they were engaged with the Macedonian infantry. Pinned on both sides, the center began to collapse and retreat. The cavalry continued onwards, attacking the Thebans now. And the Thebans fought fiercely against the Macedonians, but the combined assault of the infantry and cavalry was too much, and the Thebans began to flee the field. Only the sacred band stayed to fight, and it is said they were cut down to the last man. No survivors remained of the elite Theban force. As Alexander and his side achieved a terrific victory, Philip had done the same. The renewed assault by the Macedonians had been too much for the Athenians, and they began to flee the field. Among the fleeing Athenians was Demosthenes. He had not partaken in the battle, having stayed in the rear lines of the Athenian forces. While Demosthenes was not the only Athenian to turn tail and flee, I do find it particularly satisfying. He had advocated for years for a major military action against Macedonia, using his considerable influence to sway public opinion. However, in the end, Demosthenes fled for his life, many of his fellow citizens right behind him, and many others whose body lay in the field, dead to preserve an honor Athens no longer possessed. For in the end, Philip had achieved a decisive victory against the combined might of Athens and Thebes. What could have been a catastrophic event for Philip was now his crowning moment. Philip had broken the major powers of southern Greece. There were no others who could stand up against him. Philip stood alone at the top. Macedonia was now the unquestioned power in all of Greece. We'll leave it here for now. Philip triumphant against all those who opposed him. Like always, if you like what you heard, give the podcast five stars and a review. I'll have maps on Instagram, so you can see all of that at pinpoint underscore history. And you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com with any questions you may have. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it.